0: Let me say a prayer, and then we'll jump into a couple announcements and dive right into the book of Acts. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thanks for bringing everyone here together as we endeavor to study your word. I pray you would open our hearts and pour in your lessons, the lessons of those who've gone before us, and I pray that we would get an idea of how to trust you more. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let's see, you guys probably know we do have visitors, new people, even this time of year when we're almost through with this semester. But there's the question line. Text your questions in during class. we like to answer as many as we can. Uh, remind you about the Israel trip. I'm not trying to beat that into you, but last time when we went, after we went, there were people that said, oh, we didn't know you guys were going. So we didn't advertise it a ton at Crossings. So I wanted, we're trying to mention it a little bit more just to let people know. We do this as part of the discipleship ministry of our church. It's not a business that we do. It's not anything I get paid to do. Uh, we do this. We do several other things. Marty does a, a cruise every year that's, that's really in, uh, encouraging, inspiring. So we try to do several things like this. So that's what this is about. But we're just trying to make sure people know about it with plenty of time to plan ahead. The other thing I wanna tell you about is on the way in, uh, you probably were given a little card asking if you wanna give us your email address. I wanna make sure you know that is not so we can sell this to marketers. But we might give it to one of the political campaigns, but I can't tell you which one at this point. Seriously, uh, next Wednesday will be our last lesson in Acts. And after that, we go into our summer schedule. Typically in the summer, we take off a couple of weeks and we meet through June and July. We like to just meet every Wednesday night as many as we can. This summer, we're going to be doing a little construction in our children's wing, uh, trying to revamp that for our kids. Long story, short version, we won't be able to do Wednesday night at the church as much as normal. So one of the ideas we had was, I want to stay in touch with you and we want to keep studying the Bible together. So probably uh, my goal is every week to send out a a biblical lesson, put some pictures and just kind of try to make the Bible come alive in the summer. So if you'd like to give us your email address, that's what we're going to use it for. Also, we have a lot of people that come on our Wednesday nights that go to other churches. That's fine with us. We'd like to be a resource to study the Bible on Wednesday nights, whatever church you go to. But those folks don't always know when we're having Wednesdays and when we're not. We take off a few Wednesdays during the year. This will let us kind of keep you posted on that. So that's what this is all about. Uh, And so if you would like to give us your email address, if you have friends who would like to get on that list and get those lessons, just take one of these, give it to them, or bring it next week, because we'll do this the next couple of weeks. So anyway, that's kind of our announcements for the evening as to what's going on with that. We are in the book of Acts. And we have, we're almost finished. We're near the end of Paul's adventure. It's been a great journey if you think back on the book of Acts, and I hope some really key ideas have distilled out of that for you. Let me remind you where we were. We're going to be in chapters 23 through 26. You've got your Bibles and you like to make notes in them. That's wonderful. So we're going to be in chapters 23 through 26. I need to tell you where we left our hero Paul last week. He has finished what's called the third missionary journey. We call it that. He didn't. He just was out planting churches. But he finished it in Jerusalem. He had an offering to take to the saints in Jerusalem because they'd had a drought, and so some of the Gentile churches gave money to help the poor in Jerusalem, the poor Christians there. And so he came back to Jerusalem. When he did... I want to mention one thing that some questions came in last week we didn't get to. If you remember when he got to Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus, and some of the elders of the church, the Christian church there said, Paul, we have a problem. We love what you're doing taking the gospel. But the Jewish Christians here have heard that you're out there telling people quit following the law of Moses and that kind of thing, which he wasn't. Now, he was teaching that the law of Moses won't save you. It's only faith in Christ. But he wasn't telling Jews to stop circumcising their children or whatever. He, that, that's okay. It wasn't going to save you, but he wasn't telling them to stop. But that was kind of the malicious rumors. So they said, Paul, take a vow, become a Nazarite for 30 days. It's kind of a strict vow to... to uh, You cut your hair, and then you let it grow for 30 days. You don't go near a dead body. You don't, you know, kind of the Samson thing. You don't drink any wine, grapes, anything, which was a big deal in that time because they cut their water with wine for sanitary purposes. So it's a big deal to give it up. And he said, okay, I'll go ahead and do that. He didn't think it made him holy. He didn't think it did anything. But he thought, okay, that will make them feel better. And one of the questions that came up was Paul being hypocritical in doing those things. And that's a really good question because we talked a little bit about sometimes as christians we want to make the gospel accessible to people so how much should we change our behavior and i'm going to give you the guide that the apostle paul used. this is what you're going to see all through scripture with paul In the, the christian life is very free in the sense that we don't have many foods we're not allowed to eat like the jews did we don't have any special festivals that we have to follow. None of those things are part of our holiness that make us right with God. The Jews thought that under the law of Moses. So Christians have this huge things you can do. Paul, he could eat pulled pork sandwich if he wants to. You know, he does he knows that obeying those kosher laws doesn't matter. He doesn't think you have to take a Nazarite vow to be more holy with God. He says, you know, Christians can do this much. And here's what you see Paul doing. In order not to, you know, just to take some things off the table so he could present the gospel, you'll see him restrict his freedoms. In other words, for example, he didn't eat pork, not because he thought it was wrong. He just thought, I could, but you know what, I'm not going to, because I really don't want to get in the way of me talking to the Jews about Christ. He thought you could eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. He said, that's not, That's idols are made up. But Jews, oh, it made him uneasy. He said, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to restrict that. So what you see typically is Christians restricting our freedoms in order to not get in the way of the gospel. What you don't see happening, and this is the key point, you don't see Paul expanding them. Here's what I mean. The Gentiles would often go to orgies at the temple. Paul goes, nah, don't think so. And he goes, oh, well, you'll have a lot of people you can preach the gospel to. Yeah, well, don't think so. In other words, you see what I'm saying? He's not expanding beyond what Christ allows, but he often would restrict. And that's a great lesson for us. Sometimes we give up our rights hate to use that word in, in connection with Christian, but sometimes we give, voluntarily give up things we could do, but we don't start doing things that are wrong just to reach people. Does that make sense? Does, we had a couple questions on that in there. Great question. I just wanted to clear that up a little bit. That's kind of the barometer that Paul used, and I think it's still a good one. We'll forego some of our rights if it helps to reach people for Christ, but we won't do things that are, that are wrong to reach people for Christ. Well, Paul, we left him last week in a dire situation. So even though he's trying to be acceptable to the Jews and not let anything get in the way, he went into the temple and there was a riot in the temple. And so what they were doing, I'm going to show you where we're talking about. Out, uh, They thought that Paul had taken a Gentile in there, in the sacred space. He didn't. And so there was this huge riot and they're trying to kill him. Well, meanwhile the Roman guard, the tribune, and the Roman guards who are here, they are in the Antonia Fortress. You notice the Roman fortress is literally attached to the temple so they could look down in. Well, the tribune goes down, rescues him out of the mob, and uh, takes him beaten and bloody back into the fortress and goes, all right, you must be doing something wrong. I don't know what all these people are talking about, but let's torture him and find out what he's doing wrong. And he says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. They go, oh, well, then we're certainly not going to be torturing you. And so he uh, says, all right, we're going to figure out what's going on. Takes him to the Jewish leaders, puts Paul in the middle of them. They start talking. He probably doesn't understand Aramaic is what they're speaking. Think Hebrew, that, that what they're saying. But he realizes the next thing you know, they're trying to kill him again. He's like, get this guy out of here. I don't know what their problem is, but they don't like him. Well, it says this, the next morning after that meeting, this is where we left off. The Jews formed a conspiracy, bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men took an oath. We will not eat or drink until we kill this guy. They said to the priests and the elders, listen, we're going to kill this guy. I tell you what, you tell the tribune, hey, bring him back. We need to ask him a few more questions. And when you do, we're going to jump him, kill the guards, and kill him. Well, they've been fasting since last week. So let's see what happens to them. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, now that's interesting, first you ever hear of his family. He apparently has a sister living in Jerusalem. She has a son. They somehow find out about this plot. Paul's family, by the way, pretty high up. They're pretty connected. He was studying under the premier rabbi of the time. His family's obviously well-connected in Jewish circles. Can you imagine the disgrace when he turns into a Christian? He literally gave up everything. However, his sister's son, they hear about it, and so she sent him into the barracks, into that fortress, to talk to Paul. Paul called one of the centurions. The tribune is over all these centurions, and each centurion is over 100 soldiers. So they're... They're pretty high up. He said, listen, you need to take this young man to the tribune, the commander. He's the top guy, military guy there. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander and said he needs to tell you something. So he took the young man by the hand, which means he's probably very young, took him by the hand, aside, and says, what do you want to tell me? And the boy said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin. This is like better than a soap opera. And this is real history. He says, they're going to kill him when you send Paul over uh, to, to them. He said, so don't be taken in. And the tribune realizes, this is explosive. I already rescued this guy twice. I don't want a big fight here. So what he does is, under the cover of darkness, he gets Paul out of town. So let me read what he does. He called two of his centurions... Get 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. Whoa. You're going to get almost 500 soldiers. That gives you an idea of how serious this is. Now, nobody ever accused the Romans of going easy on the military power, all right? But getting almost 500 soldiers to get this guy out of town, I want you to feel how deadly serious and how violent the situation was. He said, get them ready, and I'm going to send him to Caesarea. That's where the Roman governor uh, lived. It's about 60 miles away. And we're going to go at the third hour of the night. That's about 9 p.m. In those days, you're thinking, 9 p.m., that's early. People are still out. No, they rolled up the carpets uh, in Jerusalem You know, when the, when the sun went down. So this is at night. This is when people aren't going to notice. He said, we're going to get him out of here tonight before any problems. And so he's writing a note to the governor the Roman procurator, the Roman governor... Think Pontius Pilate. This is the highest Roman official in Israel, in Judea. He's writing a note, and he says, Claudius Lysias, that's the tribune, writing to His Excellency, the governor Felix, greetings, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued them, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Okay, that's some serious spin. Right, he's making himself look pretty good, but can't blame him. So, I, desiring to know what in the world is they were charging him with, I brought him to their council, and I found out that they're just talking about questions about their law, but nothing deserving death or imprisonment. So, when I found out there was a plot, I decided to send him to you at once, so his accusers can come before you and state their problems. So, the soldiers took Paul took him by night to uh, Antipatris, so they took him 35 miles that night, sent the infantry on back, and the next day they went on to, they returned, the soldiers returned to the barracks and the horsemen, the cavalry, went on. When they got to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, Felix, they presented Paul before him. When he read the letter, he asked, where are you from? And he said, I'm from Tarsus up in Cilicia. Well, he had authority over that area, so... Gosh, he was going to pass the buck if he could. He said, Okay, I'll give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. 60 miles, it's going to take them at least three days to walk there. When your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium. So I need to talk to you about Felix just a little bit. Let me, this guy's, this is interesting. This is, when you get into the Roman world, This is better than reality TV shows. And I want you to know, everything I'm about to tell you is historically true. And I want you to understand the world that Paul is in. It's not that much different than ours. In fact, it may be worse in some ways than ours. Antonius Felix was a slave. This guy's really unique. He and his brother Pallas were slaves in the household of the emperor Claudius, Claudius was emperor of the Roman Empire until 54 A.D. It's now about 56 or 57 A.D. So he and his brother were freed. They became freemen. So they were free men, but they had been slaves. Well, that's kind of a better than a slave, but it's still not a noble status. Claudius, before he dies, makes him a Roman governor, unheard of. And he rules from 52, that's still when Claudius is uh, emperor, until 59. And I'll tell you what happened to him in 59 in a minute. But basically, he's really risen in life. He's done really well for himself. But the other Romans kind of looked down on him. It just wasn't done. You just didn't start out a slave and then become a Roman governor, even of a minor province like Judea. So it's a little scandalous in Rome. Felix's personal life is also interesting. He had three wives, and at this time, he's on number two. Number two is very interesting. Her name was Drusilla, and she's a Jew. When he got there, he he met this girl, Drusilla. She is the granddaughter of Herod the Great. I'm going to talk to you about a lot of Herods. Because they just kept using the family name. Herod the Great, if you remember him, he's the one who was king of Judea when Jesus was born. He's the one that tried to kill all the babies, or did, kill all the babies in Bethlehem. Not a nice guy. But Herod the Great started a dynasty. And his kids, and he had a lot of them, his wives, he had a lot of them, uh, were, ruled this area for about two generations Well, Drusilla is his granddaughter. Of course, he's dead now. Is his granddaughter. Well, at the time that Felix first meets her, she's 16 years old. She's married to a guy named Azizus. He's the king of a little territory in Syria. So think just north of, well, Syria then is Syria now. So just north of Israel. She's married to a little king, a petty king in Syria. Josephus, the first century historian, says she is gorgeous. And so he decides I should be married to her. So he sends her a love letter, and he said, Look, if you'll leave that bozo, and you will come be my wife, I will make you so happy you, don't, you just won't believe it. There's kind of a play on the words there, because his name in Latin, Felix, means happy. He says, So come live with me, you'll be happy. I know it sounds really sappy, but it worked. She left that guy to come be his wife, and so he's married to Herod's granddaughter. Smart move on his part, because as he comes in to rule over the Jews, hey, I'm married to a Jew, come on, you know, I'm one of you guys. Well, it turns out he really wasn't, though, because he was brutal. In fact, the Roman historian, Tacitus, writes about it. Now, the Romans looked down on him, because he was a slave at one time, said, he wielded Royal power with the conscience of a slave, meaning the guy has no breeding whatsoever. He doesn't really know how to rule. Now, all of the governors were brutal, but he was even more brutal, and he was not really very favorable to the Jews. In fact, in 59, he was recalled to Rome because there in Caesarea, where he was, uh, there were riots between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, I'm not talking about Christians now, just Jews and Gentiles. Didn't like each other. There were violent riots. He was unsuccessful in putting the riots down, and he was ridiculously brutal. And he favored the Gentiles over the Jews. So the Jews, after the bloodshed's done, sent a delegation to Rome and got him recalled for basically mismanagement, for poor management. So that's what happened to Felix in 59. One kind of a sad note, he and his wife, Drusilla, had a son whom they named Agrippa. Agrippa, by the way, I'll show you a family, a little piece of a family tree in a minute, but Agrippa was Drusilla's dad's name. She and her son died in a really famous incident in 79 AD. That's 20 years after this happens. She and her son are vacationing in Pompeii. You guys remember Pompeii where the big... Uh, volcano and the volcanic ash and they've excavated it now and it's like in pristine condition. They were in in Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79 and that's how they died. They died in that uh, eruption of the volcano. So not exactly a happy life, not exactly a successful guy, but that's our guy. That's Antonius uh, Felix. This is the guy who is the most powerful guy in Judea and this is who Paul is going to go see. I wanted to show you, while we're here, just a little bit about Caesarea. This is, a, this is basically a picture of what it looked like. Now you see ruins, but you can kind of envision this. Herod the Great built this. So it's 57 AD. He built this just a little bit before the time Jesus was born. Made the harbor out of nothing. Made this beautiful, massive place. But what I want to show you is he not only built the harbor... And by the way, how you build a harbor and build walls under the ocean is fascinating. And if you go to Israel, I will show you how they did it as we're standing there. But seriously, I would tell you, but I don't have time. So anyway, so he built this harbor. But what I want to show you is the cultural things. We have seen a picture before of the Hippodrome. That's this area right here. That's where they would race the horses and the chariots. I'll show you a picture of it in a minute. Then you've got the uh, theater back here, that big outdoor theater. What I wanted to show you was this area right here. You see that little peninsula going out? Herod the Great built a lavish castle, or castle, palace complex there. And I'm going to show you the remains of that palace complex in this next slide. That's where Paul was being held. That's where Felix was living and ruling from, is where this place Herod the Great had built almost 60 years before. This is standing, looking out toward the ocean, and everything in front of us here was, imagine just the big roofs over all those columns. Imagine all these walls in this palace area. These are all rooms and lavish areas. When you go in there, you can still see some of the frescoes. They're gorgeous artwork in there. And so this is a massive palace. In fact, as you go out into the ocean, out this way, Herod the Great, right at the end, had a swimming pool built right out into the Mediterranean. I mean this guy did it first class. Well he's dead and now the Roman governors are living there. But this is where Paul is being held in Caesarea. So, they get to Caesarea. Felix says, I'll hear your case. So Ananias, the high priest, went to Caesarea. You can kind of tell when this is happening because Ananias was high priest until 59. So this was probably happening about 57 AD. So they're going to go up and they're going to tell Felix their, their problems. So they took a lawyer named Tertullus. Tertullus is a Roman name. They're taking a Roman lawyer. Why? Because this is going to be in Latin. This is not going to be in Hebrew. That's one thing I'm trying to point out to you. There are several languages going on here too. So they take this Roman lawyer, or at least Roman trained, and he's going to go make their case. So he gets before Felix, and he said, Felix, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you. Blatant lie. And your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Even worse lie. But, he's buttering him up, everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude, not likely. But in order not to weary you, I just want you to listen. We found this man, he's a troublemaker, He's stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. And I think by examining, you'll find out this is a bad guy and you should do something to him. So this is what's happening uh, before Felix. This is their case that they're making. The one thing I wanted to point out here is that idea he's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. And you're saying, great, we found out Paul was a Nazarene. Now we know which denomination he was part of. Must not be many Nazarenes in this crowd. But anyway, my point is that's what they called them. The Christians are calling themselves the way, the way of following Christ. Uh, but the Jews and all said they follow this Jesus of Nazareth. And so they started calling them the Nazarenes, that people that follow that Nazarene guy. And in fact, today... In the Hebrew and Arab language, Christians are still called Nazarenes. So they're really not exactly sure who he is. So they make their case before him. And then Paul gets up and he begins to talk to Felix, uh, the governor. And he makes his case and he basically says, Look, I know that you know uh, this place and I know that you know that none of this is true. And basically they can't prove anything that they're saying about Paul. So, Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, he knew who Christians were, he adjourned the proceedings. He said, I'll tell you what, when Lysias the commander comes, I'll decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but give him freedom and let his friends visit him. He's a Roman citizen, he's not a prisoner, he's really more being held for his own good. And so his friends can come take care of him. Well, several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. This is the girl I mentioned, who was a Jew. He sent for Paul, and he began to listen to Paul as he spoke about faith in Christ. As Paul talked about righteousness and self-control and judgment, Felix became afraid. Now, you think about what you know of his life. He's hearing the gospel, and it's really making him uncomfortable about himself. And so he was afraid, and he dismissed Paul. He said, that's enough for now. You can leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. At the same time, he was kind of hoping that Paul would give him a bribe, so he would let him go. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. He kept Paul for two years because if he released him, the Jews were going to be mad. If he let the Jews do what they wanted with him, he would be accused of unjustly condemning a Roman citizen. So he's kind of caught. So what does he do? Does what every good politician does. Nothing. He just keeps him there. Okay, that was a cheap shot. I'm just going to admit. Fair (laughs) enough. But my point is, he just says, we'll just keep him here. He keeps him there for two years. So two years are going to pass while we're talking about this. Paul, that would be killing Paul. He wants to be out preaching. But here he is stuck for two years. So finally, in 59... Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. He is another Roman governor who had the unlucky break of being named Porcius Festus. So he takes over as the governor two years later. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Now you know why he wanted to grant a favor to the Jews. 59 AD, he is totally botched this riot. He's just been bloody and brutal. The Jews sent a delegation to Rome and all of a sudden he got a notice from Rome saying, you need to come to the home office. We need to talk to you. Do you think he wants to antagonize the Jews? No way. He wants to get up there and go, it was a big misunderstanding. We're buddies. Everything's okay. So he keeps Paul in prison. You see why this is happening. This is real life happening in the midst of the Bible. Of course he's not going to release Paul. So he keeps him there. I want to give you just one short faith lesson while we're here. I know I think I'm blitzing through this a little fast, but I want to get to what happens in the next incident in Paul's life. But this incident with Felix is very interesting. He meets a guy who is no more righteous or just. He's as corrupt, as brutal, as bloody. Even the Romans don't like this guy. And he's going to decide Paul's fate. But as you read, and I hope you do, because I'm just giving you little excerpts, his speech before Felix, he's just preaching the gospel. He's giving his testimony like, you know what, you may be an awful guy, but you too could be saved. This is unbelievable how Paul is so bold just to speak the truth and tell his testimony before Felix. But as I look at this, I think, wow, that is a terrible thing that happened to Paul that he's stuck there for two years. But I want you to stop and think about this. As much as the Jews wanted to kill him, if Felix had let him go, how long do you think Paul would have lived? I think not very long. Paul doesn't have a sword. He doesn't have an army. He doesn't have a bodyguard. The Christians were, would rather die than kill these Jews. And so he's going to run away. They're going to get him. So what seemed to us like, well, that's tragic. This guy could have been out preaching. Paul is probably fretting. You don't really see that from Paul. I think he just trusts God. Looking back, I think if he'd been set free, he'd be dead. Instead, God preserves his life by keeping him in prison. And the point I want to mention to you is this. We need to be careful. When we have unpleasant things happen in our lives, it can be a bad thing. But more often than you think, Romans 8:28 is true. In all things, God works together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I doubt Paul understood those two years he stuck there. God, why? Why don't you get me out of here? I'm going to go start some more churches. And God says, no, trust me, you need to hang around right where you are for a couple of years because there are a lot of people that want to kill you. Well, you might think at the end of two years they've forgotten about this. Oh, no. And this is amazing to me. Paul is stuck there, not able to leave and preach. I mean, his friends can come to him. He's writing letters to churches, but he's not able to get out and preach. You'd think they go, okay, everything's fine. Now, two years later, they're even more intent on killing Paul. So I think it's interesting to look at God's provision, even in unpleasant circumstances, because if he hadn't been in prison, I think Paul would be dead. And I think that would have been the end of the story, and we wouldn't get to see the rest of, the, of Acts. We'd cut this thing short one week because Paul would be dead. So Festus comes on the scene. Paul's got to go, oh, you've got to be kidding me, because it was really common for when you were leaving office to just pardon everybody. It's like, okay, I'm leaving office. You can't do anything to me. So all those guys I've been holding, eh, I let them all go. What does it matter to me? Well, obviously, Felix, it did matter because he didn't want to antagonize the Jews. And Paul's like, you've got to be kidding me. Now I'm held over. i got a brand new guy coming in here. So Porcus Festus comes in. Three days after he arrived at the palace, Festus went from Caesarea's palace to Jerusalem, making a courtesy call, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. Now stop and think about this. Paul's been held for two years Get over it, Jewish leaders. But two years later, they go, New guy, we're going to kill this guy, Paul, this time. So they hit him right away with these charges against Paul. Let me tell you what's happening. Paul's not out preaching, but Christianity is exploding. The gospel is just exploding. It's just good news for a hurting world. And so they're like, Paul started this stuff. He gets out of here. He's going to do more of this. we got to kill him. Maybe that will discourage all the other Christians. So that's why they're trying to kill him. So they go to Festus and they say, hey, this guy Paul, he's in your jail. You need to kill him. So they urgently requested Festus as a favor to them. What do you want to do if you're incoming governor? Get on good terms with the Jews. Right? It's like, hey, we want peace here. You do your part. I'll do my part. And they go, well, it would help a lot if you just give us a favor. Sure. Well, you got a guy in your jail. Oh, we don't want you to do anything to him. Why don't you just transfer him to Jerusalem? Well, that seems kind of innocuous. Because they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. They had a long memory. Festus answered, Paul's being held at Caesarea. He knows he's a Roman citizen. He said, I'm going to go to Caesarea. Why don't you guys just come up with me? We'll do court there. That's where I typically do court is in Caesarea. We don't really know much about Festus, but I did want to show you one interesting thing, uh, just archeologically. This is our picture again, and I want to remind you that the palace is over here, this area. What I want to do now is I'm going to take a picture, and we're going to stand in the Hippodrome, and we're going to look this way, and I want to show you this palace area right here. So that's where we're looking. We're right here at the Hippodrome, which goes off in that direction. This is the palace going out into the sea. You see this room right here? This is a very interesting little room. It has beautiful mosaic floor. It's close to the entrance to the palace complex. I mean, this palace complex was huge. It's hard to tell now because you see the ruins, but this is gorgeous. It's sitting right between the hippodrome. The theater is right over here. It's sitting right out on a little promontory. Beautiful place. You can imagine how grander it was. But that room right there was obviously a meeting room. It was like an audience room. Before you get, if you were going to have people come in for an audience with the the Roman procurator or Herod who built this, you don't want to let them all the way into the back of the house. Usually, right as you came into the palace, there would be a reception room, an area where you'd hold court or you'd meet with people, or you'd have a cocktail reception, you know, so that people didn't traipse in and use the good bathroom, you know. And so you'd have them at the beginning. That's what this room is. That is probably exactly where this happened. That's probably where he was with Felix, and what you're about to see happen probably happened in that room. And so it's just fascinating to see the places and realize, wow, 2,000 years later, this is almost certainly where this is happening. So... They get there, I'm going to read to you just a little bit about uh, what's happening in this situation. Uh, Festus, he rules from 59, and then he gets sick and dies pretty quickly in 62 AD. So this is really soon after he gets there in 59, and the Jews come up, and so Paul made his defense against what the Jews uh, were going to say about him. He says, I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. This is very smart. So he's standing there in the palace, Roman governor, all the chief priests and all these guys are all gathered around him, accusing him of stuff, and he says, I haven't done anything wrong against them or their temple, which Festus is like, I don't care about your temple, but I haven't done anything wrong against Caesar. And that's true. He was going around teaching that Caesar's not God. God is God. But he did it in a way that he never just said that blatantly. He would just say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And so he was very subversive in how he was teaching that. So there's no way to get him on saying we should depose Caesar, we should revolt. Christians weren't saying that. They weren't saying, hey, let's get our weapons and let's overthrow Caesar and make this a Christian country. That's not what they were saying. They were just preaching the gospel. So there's really nothing to get him on. So Festus, though, wanting to do the Jews a favor, said, well, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there? Paul's really shrewd. He said, he realizes what's going on. Why are you asking me that? You're asking me that because you can just kind of wash your hand of it and say Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem for the trial. He died on the way, couldn't do anything about it. Festus is trying to be very political here and do something for the Jews without being involved at all. Paul's too smart for that. He said... I'm standing before Caesar's court, and that's where I ought to be tried. And he's absolutely right. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you know very well. He's kind of getting in his face, right? He's a powerful governor. He said, you know very well. If I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, then I'll, I'll happily die. But if the charges brought by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar, which was the right of every Roman citizen. So now Festus is like, oh, great. He's absolutely right. I cannot turn him over to them. He's a Roman citizen. He's appealed to Caesar. This case is done. You Jews, you're out of this. He's going to go to Rome. He's going to stand before Caesar sooner or later because you don't have any jurisdiction over him. So Festus tried to finesse this thing, but Paul was too smart, and he wasn't able to finesse it. Well, so he's got Paul under guard. He's going to have to send him to Caesar. Here's the problem. You can't send him to Caesar and say... I can't handle my administrative duties, so I'm sending this guy on some case I don't even understand. That's a quick way to get a really low performance rating. So he thinks to himself, i got to send him to Caesar and tell him something about what this guy's done. Well, coincidentally, the king of the Jews shows up. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice, I'm going to tell you about them in a second, arrived at Caesarea. You remember, the Romans were the governors, but they had, the Herods were kings. They ran the civil courts and they were Jews, at least nominally. They kind of ruled the country, and the Roman governor would only get involved on capital cases and making sure the taxes came. So, just like in Jesus' day when Pontius Pilate was the governor and Herod was the king, you know, he got to rule the country, same's true now. This Agrippa is King Agrippa II. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. And he's now the king. He came to visit the new governor. He's a Jew. And so they came to visit to pay their respects. Since they were spending a few days there, Festus discussed Paul's case. He said, Agrippa, there's a man here that Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders brought charges against him and asked that I would condemn him. I told him, we don't hand people over before they face their accusers, so I had a little trial. He said, I convened the court, but when they got here, they didn't charge him with anything I expected. Instead, they had some kind of point of dispute about their own religion and some dead man. This is really good. This is what the Romans thought that Christians were preaching. This is pretty good. They said, he's got some issue about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claims is alive. Isn't that interesting? Do you remember how often in Acts you're seeing what they're preaching is the resurrection? They're saying you will live forever and you can overcome death and you can be reconciled to God in heaven for eternity and the proof of that is Jesus Christ rose from the dead they're preaching the cross it's not that they didn't preach that Jesus died and bore our sins but they really preached more he's raised from the dead and so you too can live forever and that's what that's what he got out of he said there's this man named Jesus that I'm pretty sure he's dead because Pontius Pilate crucified this guy. Paul says he's alive. Isn't that fascinating? This preaching the resurrection, even the Romans kind of understood that's what they're saying. He said that's all he's talking about. So Paul made his appeal to be held over to the emperor, so I ordered him held. He said, but I don't know what to write to Caesar to tell him. And Agrippa said, I'd kind of like to hear this man myself. And he said, well, you can hear him tomorrow if you would like to, and I'll bring him in and you can listen to him. Let me pause for a second, and I want to tell you who Agrippa and Bernice are. This is a tiny piece of the family tree. I can't get the family tree on a slide of Herod. He had wives. He killed wives. He had children. He killed some of his children. He had children trying to take over his throne and kill him. I mean, he had really quite a dysfunctional family. I'm sure counseling would have helped them a great deal. Anyway, so Herod the Great, now with one of his wives, had these kids. Miriamne, Herod V, Herodias, Herod Agrippa. See a little narcissism there? Herod Agrippa I and Aristobulus Jr. So these are the kids with one of his wives. Herod Agrippa I inherited Judea. He was king earlier in Acts, by the way. He was the king of Judea earlier in time. He had these kids. Actually, these are the ones I want to talk about. He had a son, Herod Agrippa II, had a sister named Bernice, Miriamne, and Drusilla. So now in 57 AD, Herod the Great is dead, Herod Agrippa is dead, and now the kids are running around, the grandkids. So Herod Agrippa II has taken over as king of Judea. Drusilla, the youngest, she is the one that was married to Felix. And so she's back in Rome now, going to die at Mount Vesuvius in a while. Agrippa comes with his sister, Bernice. This is an interesting, juicy little scandal from history. Let me tell you about Bernice. Bernice is another looker, just like Drusilla. Gorgeous girl. But her dad, when she was 13 years old, Herod Agrippa I married her to his brother, Herod. I know there are a lot of Herods in this story. So she was given in marriage to her uncle when she was 13 years old. Well, when her uncle died, her dad is also dead, she went to live with her brother, Herod Agrippa II, and scandal breaks out. Rumors of incest that they are intimate with each other, brother and sister. And so it's scandalous in the ancient world. goes all the way to Rome. You read it in some of the... By the way, there are still some writings from uh, Roman gossip columnists. And uh, when you read, I'm not not making that up, that Roman gossip column, some of that survives. You'll hear talk about this in the Roman gossip columns of the time. So she comes back to him. Well, these rumors are not good. He is, after all, king of Judea. She's living with him. So he marries her off to some king of a little small state. She leaves him shortly after that, goes back to live with Agrippa. Now the rumors are really flying. That's when this is happening. So he and his sister come to visit and everybody's scandal like, sister? Yeah, right. This family is really goofed up. Let me tell you what ends up happening to her though. She has an interesting life. We'll come back to this point in time. So after this, in 70 AD, so it's about 13 years later, the Romans are going to destroy Jerusalem. There's a big rebellion of the Jews in 66. The Romans are going to come in and destroy this whole place. We're fast forwarding a little bit. And The general that ends up destroying Jerusalem is a guy named Titus. His dad became emperor, Vespasian, and goes back to there, and he destroyed Jerusalem. Well, Agrippa and Bernice are like, we're with you guys. We don't think they ought to be rebelling. She and Titus kind of have a little summer romance while he's destroying Jerusalem. They become lovers. She goes back to Rome with him, have a big fling, all over the gossip columns. His dad dies, and he becomes emperor in 79. But because Roman public opinion was so disapproving of any Roman marrying a Jew, he had to cut off his relationship with her when he became emperor. So she had quite the little scandalous life. At this time, she's there with her brother paying her respects. Uh, That's just the... Territory that Herod Agrippa was over as king. I'll show you a picture. He minted some coins, and when they minted coins, this is a coin from right in the fifties. On the on the left, on the front side, is Emperor Vespasian, so it's a picture of him. On the back is a picture of Agrippa in just this really heroic-looking uh, pose, and uh, in Greek is A-G-R-I-P-P-A, right there. So he's kind of got this little monument to himself. He mints a coin with the emperor's picture and his picture. Well, that's this Agrippa, and that's what he's uh, kind of trying to solidify his rule there. This is a great painting, by the way, of an artist's rendition of Paul in front of. You see Festus. The Roman guy on the left, and then on two thrones in the middle, you see Agrippa and his sister, Bernice. And that's what's going to happen next. They're going to come before them. And so, the next day, Agrippa and Bernice and Festus show up, and they have Paul brought. And Agrippa said to Paul, you have my permission to speak. Paul stretched out his hand. Rhetoric. By the way, this little speech is in very elegant Greek. This is very educated Uh, Kind of level of talking, the most in the book of Acts. He says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am making my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, because I know you're familiar with the customs and the controversies of the Jews. So I beg you, listen to me patiently. This is really good public speaking in that day. He said, You know my manner of life. In Jerusalem, I'm known by all the Jews. Everybody knows me. They know my family. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to tell you, that I was raised the strictest sect of the Jews. I was a Pharisee. But I'm on trial here before you. Why? Not because of anything I did wrong as a Jew, because I have the hope of the promise of God. He's going to deliver a sermon. He says, I'm here before you, not because of anything they say, because I have the hope of the resurrection. That's why the Jews are accusing me. I hope you don't think it's incredible that I'm about to tell you about a man who rose from the dead. And he goes on to tell him that Jesus is the Messiah, gives his testimony. He's like, Paul, don't you think you should be doing a little legal defense to get off? No. Paul says, are you kidding me? I got this corrupt Roman governor. I got this king and his sister of the Jews who are so dysfunctional and funny. These people need to hear the gospel. And that's what he does. So he goes and tells them the gospel. And so at the end of his speech, he says, and that's why I'm standing here testifying to you today, to small and great anybody that will listen to me, that the Bible says that Jesus Christ must suffer and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would save us all. Boom. That's, That's his defense. He kind of presents the gospel to them. I'll tell you how they reacted to that in just a second, but let me see if we have a couple of questions before we finish the story of do they become Christians or not?
1: Well, we have several questions about Paul at this time. Uh When he was in prison, did he have some freedom? What were his conditions like?
0: Yeah, his conditions, uh, because he's not a prisoner per se, he's being held, and he's a Roman citizen. He would have been given a room. He would have been under guard, meaning he's not free to leave, but his friends are free to visit him, and his friends are free to bring him food. They didn't feed their prisoners, by the way. If there's nobody bringing you food, well, you die, it solves our problem, seriously. And so his friends came to him, and he could write letters, but he just couldn't leave. And uh, so he was in decent conditions. That's not true later in his life, but it is true at this point. He's just being detained as a Roman citizen awaiting the disposition of the trial.
1: Um, How old was he?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Nobody probably really knows uh, how old Paul is, but he's a young man, too young to be stoning Stephen. Okay, we're just gonna put some detective work together. So he's a young man, 37 AD-ish, you know, when Stephen is being stoned, and so, he gives the sign of he's going to die. Okay, don't get depressed because I'll tell you more about this next week. But he's going to die in about 67 or 68. About 10 years from now, he's going to die. I'll tell you how next time. So at that time, he writes letters in that period like he's an older man. He, he sounds like an older, more experienced man of that time. So basically, Paul's probably late 40s, 50s. It's hard to know for sure, but he's probably 40s or 50s at this time. I consider that very young. I just want you to know. What
1: happened to the fasting murderers?
0: The fasting murderers? I knew somebody was going to ask. History does not record what happened to them, but I'm going to tell you what I think happened to them. I suspect they sort of slunk off and ate and drank and just hope nobody remembered that. So I suspect that when push came to shove and they realized they couldn't do it, they found some technicality and decided to eat and drink. I do not think they starved themselves to death. But there's nothing in history or the church fathers to my knowledge that picks their story up.
1: They were political promises.
0: They were political promises. I don't know if that was your editorial comment or the question, but, yeah, pretty much. It was a political promise.
1: Okay, was Luke with Paul during this time?
0: Was Luke with Paul during this time? You don't know for sure, but if you look at when it changes to we language, to they language, again, you can't be sure, but since this is third person, probably not. It's hard to know for sure, but the way he's writing it, you can't tell that he's necessarily there with him. He will be uh, shortly. Probably is because as we start next week, the we language kicks in, and he's going to go to Rome with Paul. So it's likely that he's here for this, but I can't guarantee you that. But yeah, in this era, Luke's around in this time period.
1: Okay, can we talk about the cards for the email? A little housekeeping for just a minute.
0: (laughs) Yes, we can.
1: People would like to know what they're supposed to do with them when they leave here.
0: When you leave here, there should be little boxes at the exits if you want to just drop them. I, I don't know what it looks like, but you'll see there's some card boxes. If you want to drop them in those boxes, we'll pick those up.
1: Are those the blue boxes?
0: They are not the blue boxes. Thank you for asking. We have our own little clear boxes that we're going to just take. So now don't put them in the blue boxes. They'll make their way eventually if you do, but I think there's just a couple little boxes on the tables as you come in.
1: And can they text me their information?
0: Text you their information? Sure. Sure.
1: What information do they need to send?
0: It's your name and your email address. I mean, that's all we really need. If you want to send your credit card info or something, I mean, you can. (laughs) Uh, And would you mind including that little special number on the back? (laughs) Just kidding. Good question. Okay, Let me finish this, because I want to tell you what happens. This has been a little more of a narrative, but I really wanted you to get a sense of, I want to tell you the soap opera a little bit so you realize this is real life. These are real characters this is a mess. These are not very nice people. They're living complicated lives. They're, I mean, you could pick up today's paper and read it and you go, man, 2,000 years later, this is still the same kind of people, same kind of mess, same kind of corruption, same kind of brutality. This is not much different. I, want, I think that's important for us to know because I don't want you to think of these Bible stories as a far, far away land In a far, far away universe, oh wait, no, that's Star Trek, but but Star Wars. But basically, I want you to think about this is human beings and human life. This is the gospel interacting with the world, just like it used to be then. So he's literally, boldly speaking the gospel in front of the most powerful people in the world. Well, when he said this about Jesus rising from the dead, Festus jumps in and yells out, Paul, have you lost your mind? Your great learning has driven you insane. I mean, rising from the dead? He says, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. I love that. He's like, Christianity is based on evidence. I haven't lost my mind. There are people alive today that saw Jesus afterwards. I'm going to reason to you from the scriptures. Christianity is very much eyewitness-based and very reasonable. He said, this is actually quite reasonable, Festus. He said, actually, Agrippa is very familiar with these prophecies, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped your notice, Agrippa. You know about Jesus. You've heard what happened. You've been watching us. He said, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe the prophets. Oh my gosh, he's going to try and convert this guy right there during his trial. Puts him on the spot. What's Agrippa supposed to say? Yes, I believe the prophets. And Paul goes, well, then, by all means, I invite you to become a Christian. There's water. You want to go get baptized right now? Or he says, no, I don't believe the prophets. And the next day, all over the Internet, King Agrippa says he's not really a good Jew, doesn't believe the Bible's true. Paul is a crafty guy. Well, Agrippa's a politician, so he doesn't answer the question. He said, man, we're being hard on the politicians tonight, aren't we? But he is. He said, do you really think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And I want you to imagine Paul standing there in chains, smiling. He's so clever. This is a brilliant speech. He said, whether it's a short time or a long, I pray that not only you, but everybody listening to me today could become what I am. Well, except for these chains. Man, this guy's good. It's like, what do you need me to buy? You know, I'll give you my credit card information. He's, I want you to understand just he's just boldly speaking it. Well, afterwards, the king rose up, and the governor and Bernice and those that were with him, and they left the room, and while they were talking on the way out, they said, this man's not doing anything that deserves death or even imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, if this man hadn't appealed to Caesar, you could set him free. There's obviously no charges here that are going to stick. The chief priests and the elders are wrong about this. Well, that's kind of where our story right now finishes, but there's one more lesson. Remember how he got stuck unjustly in prison for two years? And you think, wow, Paul, bad luck. And we thought, wait a minute, maybe God knew what he was doing. Well, here's another bad luck. Paul, gosh, if you hadn't done that, you could probably be free right now. For us, we look at that situation and we go, Paul... Oh, what were we thinking? You goofed up. If you hadn't said that, you could be free. And we think, oh, this is a sad situation. God, on the other hand, is going, what are you talking about? I've been trying to get this guy to Rome. You know, I told him he was going to have to testify in front of kings and nobles, and here he is. I need him to go talk to Caesar for me, too. You see what's happening? I really, if you get a lesson out of this section, it is things that seem like they're not very good occurrences to us. Sometimes God's going, what are you thinking? I needed to get you to Rome. I'm going to give you an all-expense-paid trip. The Romans are going to pay to get you to Rome, Paul, and they're going to protect you on the way. You should be thanking me for this. And You see my point. I'm being a little facetious, but sometimes in our lives, things happen and we go, God, what are you doing? And God's like, what do you mean? I'm working this thing out perfectly. This plays perfectly into my plans. I'm going to give you an opportunity to have a powerful testimony. Again, I'm not trying to downplay our trials in life, and I'm not trying to be facetious. But if you look at this section of Paul's life, you kind of have to know, you know what, maybe I should think twice before I complain to God. Maybe he really is working in all the circumstances of my life. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, next time, our final chapter, Paul gets an all-expense-paid trip to Rome where he will get an opportunity to stand and plead his life in front of Caesar. So while we wait for him to make that trip over the next week, your job is find a politician and tell him the gospel. Okay, no, I made that up. <laughs> Seriously, think about it. God's hand is in everything in our life, not just the good things. I'll
1: talk to you guys next week.